Hello listeners and welcome to the third season of Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. It comes as no surprise that children who are exposed to traumatic events such as homelessness often develop social, emotional, health and behavioural problems. So how can we prevent this from happening? With a particular interest in child protection and meaningful support for families, this week's podcast guest, Jessica Bratt, believes early intervention and providing appropriate services after traumatic events is crucial for recovery. Jessica is, is team leader of the Family Support and Advocacy Team at MICA Projects Limited. She oversees two programs funded to support families in the Brisbane area who are experiencing homelessness or at risk of homelessness. MICA Projects believes that every adult and child has the right to a home and income, healthcare, education, safety, dignity and connection with their community of choice. The team works from a two-generation approach Uh, recognising the importance of assessing needs of children as well as adults to ensure the right supports can be offered to achieve positive outcomes. Listen in as Jessica takes us through how family homelessness impacts children and young people and what services and support should be provided in order for children to properly process and recover from traumatic situations like this. Well Jess, thank you so much for joining us today. No worries, thanks for having me. How did you come to be uh, part of the MICA projects where, where you are team leader there? Uh, so I was studying social work at the University of Queensland and I did my final placement with MICA projects back in 2009. So I was lucky enough to be offered a job after that placement. And then I worked on the assessment and referral team for a couple of years and then moved into the family support and advocacy team. And what sort of brought you to... Um, doing social work at university and um, moving into this area of of mental health? Yeah, so uh, from a young age I've always had an interest in social justice and wanting to be able to make changes in our community to make sure that people who are experiencing disadvantage get the support that they need. Mm. So I think that the focus on social justice was something that drew me to social work. I was thinking I might want to study psychology But then when I learned more about what social work had to offer, I thought I'd give that a go. And when I went to university, I just loved it and Mm. it kind of seemed like a really good fit for me. So, yeah, didn't look back. And then I've always been working in the field since. You, um, during your presentation, it was really interesting. Tamara made the um, distinction between a homeless person and a person experiencing homelessness. Why do you think that's important to kind of make that distinction for people who may not be aware. Yeah. So I think uh, with 
language is really important in any context, but when we're talking about homelessness, it's really important to separate the person from that because people experience homelessness in different ways and it's different for everyone. I think if you refer to someone as a homeless person, uh, that that makes it sound as though that's the only part of their identity. Mm. So we always try and use language that's person first. So it's a person experiencing homelessness and that might not be something that has anything to do with their identity in a couple of years. Mm. That's an experience they might be able to look back on and obviously it's going to shape who they are. But when you refer to someone as homeless or disabled even, um, I think that it is kind of deficit focused. And so, limiting in a way. Yeah. So we we try and put people first in language um, and I think that that's quite common in the field of social work as well to be recognising that people have different identities and what they're experiencing is just one part of their identity at that given time. Mm. And at MICA Projects as well, we're working towards ending homelessness. So the experience of homelessness, if it does happen, should be brief mm. and non-reoccurring. So when you call someone homeless, it kind of suggests that that's their long-term state of being yeah. and we're really working to prevent that from and being long-term. Yeah, just touching on that because it's kind of – a pretty lofty goal to want to end homelessness uh, in Brisbane. Um, how, like, how do you even start? Like, where does it even begin um, to kind of tackle such a such a huge goal like that? Yeah, it's a it's a big issue, and it does affect a lot of people. I think that um, homelessness shouldn't be looked at as an individual issue either. Often, people and families become homeless as a result of structural disadvantages. Uh, and also intergenerational poverty that they've experienced. Ending homelessness is a massive task, but it is possible. Mm. I think we've looked to countries like Canada who have developed really good tools to be able to assess the needs of individuals and families experiencing homelessness. So that, that's called the VISPDAT, the Vulnerability Index Service Prioritisation Assistant Decision-Making Tool. Um, and that's been great for us to try and understand what people actually need mm. And we also operate from a housing first approach. So previously people were denied to go into certain accommodation facilities because they might have had some sort of mental health issue or drug addiction and those accommodation providers were saying, hey, you need to work on that stuff before we're going to offer you a room or a bed. That seems a bit chicken or the egg, (laughs) you know. And what we're trying to do with the housing first approach is actually offering people long-term housing that's Mm. appropriate, affordable and stable. And then that offers an opportunity to be able to work on longer term goals. Yeah. Including their, their mental health um, and wellbeing. Yeah. And the other thing that we found was that people who might not have been the most vulnerable in our community were the ones being supported to find housing. Mm. So people who are capable of coming into a service or making a phone call and asking for support were the ones who were achieving housing outcomes. Mm. But there was still a lot of people in the community sleeping rough who hadn't accessed services for over 10 years. And that was what we adopted from the Canadian and American models as well. So it's a proactive way of going out and engaging with people in the community. Mm. So we don't expect people to come into our service. Yeah. Uh, we actually go out and meet with people and ask what their needs are. And the statistics that came from that first survey period that we 
did. I think that that was in 2000 and I can't remember what year it was when we first did the VI Spadat. It could have been 2008. Mm. Um, and we went out into the community and asked people exactly what was going on for them. And what we learned was they were experiencing chronic homelessness. Mm. They'd been experiencing homelessness for really long periods of time. But the concerning statistics were really around the chronic health conditions that those people were experiencing as well. So a lot of the people who were interviewed um, were living on the streets with cancer. Wow. And with other really chronic health conditions. And they weren't being offered anywhere stable to live. Mm. So the outcome of that was being able to engage with people and report back to the community that, hey, there's this massive amount, there's this massive number of people living in Brisbane who have these health conditions and actually putting that on paper and going to the community and saying, is this what community you want to live in? Mm. Knowing that there's this many veterans, this many families, this many people with chronic health conditions, this many people with mental health conditions, and then using that those statistics to be able to advocate with government departments and also to community members in general to be able to say, hey, these are the types of people who are experiencing homelessness. These are their stories and experiences. Mm. This is what we need to do to address the problem. But that's always the first step, isn't it, going into the community and understanding what uh, – creating that awareness uh, and understanding what people need um, and then trying to work with them to – get them that support yeah and there's there's a lot of misconceptions around homelessness as well um you know some people might think that it's an individual's choice to experience homelessness Mm. and that's that's actually one of the most common myths that exists in that space people don't make a choice to be homeless Mm. they're experiencing homelessness and if given the opportunity to get housing that is appropriate for them and in a place where they want to live, mm. then in most situations they would accept that. But it's about being off, being able to offer good support to sustain those tenancies as well. And I think another interesting thing that I found from your presentation was that homelessness or a person experiencing homelessness that looks different um, to what we, you know, maybe a Hollywood version of homelessness might look like, you know, someone living on the street, sleeping rough um, and being dirty or dishevelled or or whatever it looks like. But, you know, there are families and children who are still going to school, you know, every day or most days and no one would have any idea that they're sleeping in a motel or sleeping in a car or couch surfing amongst family and friends. It's it's remarkable to me how many different iterations of homelessness and what that looks like. Yeah, definitely. And it's pretty incredible what people still manage to do when they're mm. experiencing homelessness. We we meet a lot of families who might be moving in between different motels, sometimes staying with friends, and the parents still get the kids to school every single day mm. because they can recognise that that's the stability that those children need. Um, so there's a lot of strengths that you see in this space as well. But, yeah... Um, like Tamara was saying in the presentation, it's you can't spot someone mm. who's homeless. Like it's it's an issue that a lot of different people are facing, even people in the private rental market. If their tenancy ends and they don't have informal supports, they might be quite close to experiencing homelessness and that's what we've seen with COVID as well, with the loss of income. I was just going to ask how has COVID 
2020 has been quite quite the year um, for so many reasons. But you know, how is that impacting homelessness uh, amongst the community? Yeah, so I think, well, in in Brisbane and in a lot of other cities in Australia, there was a, a very good response to homelessness because there was a risk that that would be a contributor for the mm. spread of COVID. So it was it was recognised very early and from other countries who were experiencing COVID before it hit Australia. Um, if the virus did enter into homelessness populations with their vulnerabilities, that would be a pretty bad situation. Yeah. And because of the patterns that people experiencing homelessness, um, well, because of their housing options, often they're moving from one place to another, sharing, living in close proximity to other people. So the spread would be quite significant. Um, so what the governments did was fund a crisis response to people who were experiencing homelessness, which meant that we were able to support individuals and families into temporary crisis accommodation. Right. And that accommodation was actually adequate. It was accommodation where people had their own cooking facilities and own laundry facilities. So even though it wasn't really appropriate for families who had a lot of children because it was in high-rise apartment complexes. Mm. It was still a place where they had their own facilities. Have you found um, the p- people dealing with and living with homelessness, have you, has that increased um, with, you know, going into lockdowns and potential uh, for domestic violence situations to, you know, intensify and get worse. Has that increased some of the vulnerabilities of people who might not have had it otherwise or, you know, yeah. kind of had it come come quicker? Yeah, we can definitely see there's been an increase in reports of domestic violence. Um, the statistics are pretty strong around that. Um, people who are using violence have used COVID as a, another form of control mm. um, to prevent women from having access to their external supports and um, access to services. In terms of the stress that families are under, I think that people have been more stressed. And yeah. when children were home from school, what we saw was that they didn't have access to the technology that more privileged families have. So... The families we're supporting send their children to school and have the basic necessities in order to do that. Mm. But on a low income, it's quite rare that they'd be able to afford an iPhone or an iPad or a laptop. Of course. So lots of the families who we were working with um, didn't have those technologies to be able to support learning in the home. Mm. So we got a few really good donations and that was good to be able to facilitate um, that so parents could support their children to keep learning. But yeah, any underlying mental health conditions, I think um, the symptoms of those probably increased during COVID just because of the stress. Mm. But the really positive thing was that families on Centrelink allowances, um, those incomes increased. So what we saw was that people were able to afford the, the basic necessities yeah. because the the job seeker allowance is only $550 per fortnight mm. and for someone to survive on that is pretty difficult. Yeah. Paying rent and paying for food. Impossible. And healthcare. So that actually increased, which made it easier for the families and individuals we were supporting mm. to afford what they needed. Uh, but that's that's reducing and will reduce back down by March, I think. What's, which is, you know, I mean, that's a whole nother conversation in and of itself and the support that we give to, to the most vulnerable in our communities. But ha- what impact does it 
have on young people um, who are experiencing homelessness through their families and, and the situations that they're finding themselves in? Yeah, so I think just the instability and the impact that it has on routine is a massive one. Uh, generally, parents will do anything within their power to keep their children safe and part of that is trying to find them an appropriate place to sleep. Yeah. So we talk a lot of – we see a lot that – Parents who are trying to problem solve and figure out where they can sleep sometimes can mean that children are exposed to unsafe situations, mm. needing to couch surf with family and friends. They're not always positive influences either. They mm. can be just associates or people that they've only just met. Um, so that can be quite difficult. Then disruption to education is a massive one. If a family has been living in their local community and going to and the children are going to school if they lose that housing then the children might have to come into the inner city area enroll in a new school yeah try and meet new friends and then once it's house, even more instability yep, yeah they might experience bullying from school because they don't have matching uniforms or they don't have everything that they need mm. which can create some stigma and then when they do eventually get long-term housing they've got a do all of that again yeah um and then the stress of the parents or caregivers as well is obviously increased when they're in crisis so that has an impact on children I was saying that in the presentation I think it was over over half of the parents who we surveyed said that they didn't feel as though they were able to engage with their children yeah the way that they want to because of their experience of homelessness and the stress that that creates it's such a almost taboo subject uh, in our society. It's kind of people don't really want to look at it or talk about it because it can make people feel uncomfortable yep. or um, bad <laughs> and guilty that there are people who are suffering in this way. Mm. It's remarkable the work that you're doing and, and Microprojects is doing. What, what do you find is the hardest thing about the work that you're doing? Yeah, I think that... Working with the families is incredible to be able to come in and offer support at a point where families are experiencing crisis and seeing the resilience that families have is it's a privileged space to be in. One of the most difficult things I think working in the space is seeing the, the system's failures. Mm. So the structural inequalities that exist and constantly disadvantage people who have been living in poverty. Mm. Uh, that's probably the most difficult part of the job, I think. It's, it's quite constant, the advocacy that you need to provide to government departments around what families actually need. Uh, but I think that there's still this focus on homelessness being an individual problem mm. and we really need to recognise that there's certain things that happen in people's lives that lead to them becoming homeless and that's not the fault of an individual or a family that's and a set of circumstances. And it's those unfortunate sort of cycles that yep. people can find themselves in. Yeah, so, yeah, it's just um, the challenge is trying to reshape that understanding and also breaking the cycle of poverty. And for you, how would you do that? How would you um, – what would you choose to focus on in terms of changing those um, areas? I think that – housing solutions are a massive is a massive area that needs focus 
So families having access to appropriate housing, the housing stock for families on low incomes is non-existent. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that that's equally bad in Sydney and Melbourne mm. <laughs> where the housing is even more unaffordable. Um, but, yeah, reducing the amount of time that families spend experiencing homelessness is a big area of interest for me. Mm. But also trying to increase income that's offered through Centrelink. Um, it's if you sit down and work out how much people have to pay on rent and food and school fees. Yeah, if you actually look at it yeah, <laughs> and make a budget. A little bit left over mm. at the end. So it's, you know, you can offer budgeting support to people, but it's pretty difficult when you're budgeting a really low income when the cost of living has increased. Mm. So offering people more money to meet their basic needs is probably a good first step. Yeah. You talked about um, seeing the resilience of these families who are experiencing homelessness and, and the children and, and you know, um, seeing what they're able to do and achieve. Is, is that your favourite part of the work that you do? Or Yeah, I think there's a lot of people who work in this field as well who are fighting for justice. So mm. um, it's, it's pretty cool to be surrounded by people who are passionate about creating change in our society. And I think what's happening in the domestic and family violence space is that's gaining momentum as well. And there's more partnering with the victims of domestic and family violence um, and also holding perpetrators of violence accountable. I think that's pretty relevant at the moment because it's the 16 days of activism. Of course. Yeah. And so... <sighs> If you with with the micro projects, what what are you guys focusing on in the next twelve months um, heading into twenty twenty one? Yeah, so on on our team, the family support and advocacy team, we're really focusing on trying to build more awareness of family homelessness. And with the new government, Leanne Enoch is the new minister for housing. So we really want to make sure that the minister understands the issues surrounding family homelessness and how difficult it is for families to achieve positive outcomes for their children. I think, you know, one of the goals is always to make sure that we're meeting the needs of the families who present to our service as well. And there is an increased number of families presenting who have recently left violent situations. So really making sure that we can implement a coordinated response to homelessness and domestic violence around safety and housing solutions. How interwoven is domestic violence with homelessness? Um, have you seen that specifically? Yeah, so it's domestic and family violence is the leading cause of homelessness amongst children and women in Australia. So it's, yeah, it's a pretty big focus area for us on the family support team. And I think, yeah, we, the project that we ran to try and understand the pathways that families come into our service through and where they've lived beforehand and what their experience of homelessness has been like. I think from that, we're really wanting to make sure that we can improve our response to those families. But yeah, it's, it's highly prevalent. And if you or someone you know is, you know, you're concerned about them or, you know, a, a child's friend at school doesn't seem to have a place to live. How do you help them? Like, how do you guide them towards something like the micro projects? Or how do you um, assist them in getting the support that they might need in that situation? 
Yeah, I think uh, asking questions is always a good starting point. So just trying to find out a bit more information about what might be going on for someone. And then if you do establish that they're open to working with a service, then a direct referral to that service. Um, there's a few good hotlines as a starting point and they can make a, an assessment. The Homeless Persons Information Queensland hotline is a good starting point. And if, if families or individuals are in certain areas, then they can refer out to local services. But I think it's important not to make assumptions and it's probably most important to be able to establish what an individual or family really is needing at that point because people have different needs. Mm. And yeah. we make assumptions about yeah. what people will need whereas they might not need that specific yeah, totally. thing that you think. They and if you're someone who is struggling as well, how can people get in contact with, with the microprojects? Um, so we have a, a microprojects website, so www.microprojects.com.au. Um, if you go to that website, it takes you through all of the different services that microprojects has to offer. Uh, we, it's pretty broad, the different support that we can provide. It's more than just homelessness and housing support. There's the Brisbane Domestic Violence Service. There's Young Mothers for Young Women, Family Inclusion Network, Lotus Support Services, so that's support for forgotten Australians who have experienced abuse in institutional care. So it's pretty broad, so I'd recommend jumping on the website and having a look through what services we have to offer. And then we also have phone numbers listed on the website as well. It's absolutely remarkable the work that you're doing, Jess. Congratulations on that and all the very best for the coming 12 months. Thanks so much, Libby. Thanks for having me. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.